0: Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head-on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today I am joined by Jared Bias. Jared is a partner at a family business consulting firm in the greater Philadelphia area. He has launched several businesses, including one that has helped other organizations with strategic planning, communication systems, and finding organizational clarity. He was also founding director of operations for the Experience Institute, an experience-based graduate program in Chicago. He is also co-host of the podcast The Bible for Normal People, where he gets to talk to scholars about the Bible, theology, and he gets to keep his co-host Peter Enns in line. Jared, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's good to be on. You know, you and I actually have some mutual acquaintances through some family business uh, arrangements, and we we met in person for the first time a few months ago at one of those events, and it occurred to me that you, you might be a great person to talk to about how you integrate your theology and your view of kingdom and just... All the things that I know you've been uh, studying over the years, with what it means to do good business, and how how do those things integrate? And before we get into that as a topic, why don't you give us a little bit of your background, maybe a little bit of your journey theologically, and and uh, and also in your career?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the you know the short version is I grew up in Texas and um, didn't really grow up with a lot of mentorship in terms of what you do when you get older. I, I sort of grew up with the idea that there were only six things that adults did, and they, they tended to coincide with Halloween costumes. So, you know, you could be a nurse or a fireman or uh, a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer. That was pretty much my understanding uh, of what, what I could do. And so when I went to um, college, I I actually majored in, in mathematics for a little bit, um, not really having any clear sense of what I would What I would do, other than uh, had grown up also with an understanding of uh, theology, and I always just thought of it as a habit. I mean, uh, as a hobby, and so I really like to read theology. Something I did for fun on the side, although I made sure my friends didn't know about it um, because I was I called myself a closeted nerd. Um, I like to to read things like that on the weekend and so I went to college not really thinking about that as uh, something people could do for a living or anything like that. And then I went to a philosophy course, my first philosophy course in undergrad and uh, I remember actually asking the question as I was leaving the class thinking to myself, you can major in this? You can major in thinking critically about uh, the world and truth and values and ethics that's amazing. And so, I immediately changed my major and was a philosophy major against uh, against the wishes of every advisor and parent out there. What are you going to do with a philosophy degree? Uh, but it's, it's what I pursued and then went to Westminster um, Seminary and uh, was planning to get a, a PhD in presuppositional apologetics, figuring out how to defend the Christian faith, and ended up uh, actually, falling in love with biblical studies and the text and the languages, and um, did that, which is where I met the the co-host of the podcast, The Bible for Normal People, Pete Enns. He was a professor of mine there, and uh, then was a I was a pastor for a number of years, and, um, as a pastor, and this is where it maybe gets into what you were mentioning earlier, where we we tie it into work and theology. There were a lot of challenges um, at the congregation where I was uh, a pastor. It was a, a large church, required just some good leadership and good organization, and it was lacking in those things. And I didn't really know that at the time. I didn't, you know, had never been trained in what leadership was about or anything like that. Uh, but was my eyes were sort of open to that, which led to wanting to experiment more and grow more in uh, community organizing. And developing organizations or nonprofits, and so we did that for a little bit, which turned into starting a few businesses. Found out I'm I'm, I'm actually pretty good at it. I have a passion for it. I love it, and um, so did did various things uh, around education and communications. So my businesses tended to be about helping people with communication, um, helping people with education, and uh, yeah, and that led me to lots of fun, um, different avenues. And to my current position, where I am now.
0: Did you have any? Did you get any education outside of just you know your experience in the business world, or is your academic training solely in the in the theological realm?
1: Yeah, my yeah, my all my formal education is uh, in biblical studies or philosophy, and yeah, I went to the School of Hard Knocks, so um, a lot of <laughs> a lot of research. I mean, the nice thing about a graduate education that I often talk about is that it, uh, it prepares you for how to learn, which is really nice. So you think you're going into graduate school and, and uh, getting master's degrees and PhDs to master a certain subject. But I think the real value is it teaches you how to master whatever it is you need to learn. And um, yeah, so that served me well, I think, I hope, uh, through these other fields.
0: In your experience in helping businesses either start up, whether the ones that you have your hands in or not, what have you learned about how that, how your Christian thinking, how does that integrate with your Christian thinking?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think where I would really want to uh, talk about that influence is around creation and creativity. So I have a deep respect for um, the idea that the theology and the text of Genesis and creativity and how creation language plays into it. And part of that is, you know, I went to school to be uh, in in apologetics and that's about defending the faith. And I found myself, and a lot of times I, I feel that Christians can get this way where it's all about what you're against. It's all about being critical. And it, it's just such a nice and comfortable and safe place to be, to be tearing things down and What I learned in sort of the startup space was just how difficult it is to create something out of nothing, to create order out of chaos, to order things in certain ways, um, and all the variables that go into that, the blood, the sweat, the tears, and how fruitful that is. And that's what I wanted to be a part of, And, and the reason I wanted to be a part of that was because it was rooted in a narrative of creation, and not just destruction and critique. And you know the, there's two sides to that coin. and and Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann, the theologian, does a good job of talking about these two sides of the coin. He talks about it as criticizing and energizing. So the it for him, you know, the prophets and uh, the biblical narrative is critical, but it always is also energizing and brings hope and creation and creativity. So I think that's what I, I learned through that was the how these people who have a vision and a passion to serve and to help uh, in a certain market or a certain area, um, certain groups of people, and how much commitment they have to the creative process, which for those who sit on the sidelines, um, and that was me for a long time, just didn't understand um, just how hard that is. So that's something that that definitely comes to mind in that question.
0: You know, we recently had a guest on who talked about connecting Sunday to Monday, and he he his name is Tom Nelson. He wrote a book called Economics of Neighborly Love, and he he called it uh, I think pastoral malpractice that he wasn't able to in his earlier years as a pastor be familiar with the kind of work that people who do business and are involved in that creative process. He he was on the sidelines, and he wasn't able to do that as a pastor because yeah, he didn't connect the work of creation. The that you know use that as a as an analogy, and and you know honestly, as you know, I've I've experienced this um, in my life where building something from scratch, it it's not easy, and you know the Genesis na- narrative really does resonate in that in that way so, would would you say that I think you said that you were uh, as a pastor, you weren't really engaged in this in this world at the time, right?
1: yeah, that that's right. I mean, I think I started to feel the disconnect because part of my role at the congregation, i was I was a pastor of serve and service. And so, uh, I was in charge of a lot of our ministry opportunities. So I had one foot in our community and was able to rub shoulders with some really creative people who were problem solving things like, homelessness, poverty, uh, interracial tension in our, in our community, and then had my other foot in the pastoral, more past, traditional pastoral side, and just seeing how often people made a distinction between those. And somehow that creative work, the nonprofit work, wasn't seen as spiritual or it wasn't seen as connected to God mm. as the traditional pastoral work. And, you know, I had a real passion for helping educate people and breaking down that binary and seeing uh, that our faith compels us toward these creative acts all week long, all day long. In fact, it can be part of our uh, waking, every waking hour mission and passion.
0: So, When, when you were a kid, did you, in like Sunday school, did you sing the song, Be a Missionary Every Day? I did not, no. Uh, There's this little jingle song, be a missionary every day, you know, tell the world that Jesus is the way. And, you know, it's funny that I grew up in a very conservative, uh, you would say probably way more conservative than most evangelicals are. Kind of church, and yet the idea of a missionary was not just that far off. You know, traveler who spends three to five years at a time sharing the gospel with with other people. Like the word missionary in our, in our community was we were all missionaries, and that was like Mm. it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was drilled into us, but it was not uncommon for me to realize that that's just not that's just not a. It's not literally a foreign concept. Um, It it is something that's that's there for us now, and it sounds like what you're. It, to some extent, what you're talking about is is connecting what we do every day to to doing to doing kingdom work right
1: and I, I like that the kingdom language that you use there, Doug, because you know one thing that helped me in my in my distinctions of this is um you know there are some organizations where they talk about bringing your faith into the workplace and what they mean by that is the the only thing that's truly kingdom work is an explicit a uh, call to evangelization, or uh, trying to get people to become Christians, and that's what it means to bring your faith into the workplace right, and witnessing. Right? Yeah, exactly. And so, what was a really important concept for me? I was just talking to someone the other day about this, and and even our work and our company and the values that we that we strive to live by is that we do everything we do out of our faith. That's the source of what we do and why we do what we do. And so that kingdom work doesn't always have to look like explicit evangelization or witnessing, but it can be the groundswell or the source from which we are doing all of these things. And that can be kingdom work as well. And, you know, N.T. Wright has this great passage, and I forget where it is, where he just goes off on all these things, uh, building houses and cooking and cleaning and and all of these things. Uh, it can be kingdom work. It mm-hmm. can be done from that source. And uh, of course, Brother Lawrence 500 years ago um talked about that you know doing dishes for the glory of god and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. In in your experience with businesses are you do you have owners who take that to heart and or do you kind of have to con- make those connections for them?
1: Yeah, I would say we do have some, you know, some businesses that 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 I've worked with. They they are more of the uh, evangelizing type of uh, faith workplace. Uh-huh. So, it's very explicit and, and there's Bible studies on their grounds and, and these things. And then there are others, they have a more quiet faith and, you know, they're doing it because their faith compels them to create wonderful workplaces and to create uh, places where people can have jobs, sustainable wages, and uh, and they do that for those, you know, both, both those examples do it for similar reasons uh, but the outcome might look really different and and for me it, you know it's kind of the the analogy of the body it's uh, the hand can't say to the foot we have no need of you there's there's multiple room at the table for all those approaches
0: what's your what's your consulting specialty like what areas really energize you when you're working with 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 companies
1: yeah, I do a lot with setting up uh, governance structures. So I love structure and process. So if there's anything I'm passionate about, it's structure and process. So, uh, you know, setting up uh, boards of directors or shareholder groups uh, or family councils um, and executive teams. So, one of my uh, favorite things I love to do is work to set up or transition executive teams and model for them effective meetings. Uh, very, it's it's funny, it's the simple things that create the most momentum or progress. So, I love, you know, people tend to over, I think, complicate how to be uh, a leader. They overcomplicate effective meetings. They overcomplicate business in general. So, I like to keep it very simple and show how really simple tools that require self-discipline can actually create a lot of progress and momentum. So. Mm-hmm.
0: And you've been you've been doing this for for how long then? So I have
1: been I've been out of pastoral work for six years. Okay.
0: So you were also a professor uh, in in a previous life. You were a pastor in a previous life. Now you're doing business consulting, and yet you still get to do kingdom work. You still get to do what you love uh, without having to. You you, know, you earlier said do this for a living. I can I can major in this. I can do this for a living, and yet you still get to do what you love. So was was academia just not the best route? and is is that often is that what you're seeing is often the case?
1: yeah, I, I think so. I think one of the challenges for the pastoral side is we have structures where your paycheck, your spiritual life, and your paycheck are so intertwined. and that was a really hard it's just a hard place to be. um so I, I think that <clears throat> that structure it was unsustainable for me at least. and then, on the academic side, it's just beginning to be uh, there. There's an oversaturation of PhDs, and the marketplace uh, is there's you know uh, not as much uh, demand. There's oversupply, and and so that's just creating these conditions where. And I think you know there's been articles run in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and and a lot of other publications, Chronicles of Higher Education. Of course, they they publish stuff on this all the time. That the life of the academic, it's more like the basically you got to see it as being a celebrity or a star athlete. That many who try and and very few who succeed in those, because the tenured positions, the safety full time positions are getting less and less numerous, and a lot of colleges are turning to adjunct work. And uh, you know, I just read an article the other day of these adjunct professors who are basically homeless. So they have master's degrees or PhDs. They're teaching three or four courses a semester and getting paid, you know, pennies on the dollar um, as to what a a tenured professor would get. And it's just so difficult. I had uh, several people when I was several students when I was teaching philosophy come and say, "Hey, I love our class. I want to major in philosophy. I want to be a professor someday." And I talked every single one of them out of it. And uh, and just for that reason of saying. You know, I've, I've learned to see philosophy and theology and biblical studies as a way of life. And nothing keeps me from reading all of the books that I want or having the conversations that I want or interviewing the kind of people that I want or even writing the books, frankly, at this point in our technology that I want. Um, but to go down that road is just, you got you to gotta count the cost um, is all.
0: Where do you see that trend going? I mean, do you think it's going to be a lot more, well, you could say, PhD level people being more entrepreneurial? I think so. I think we've seen that
1: um, in in different ways. You know, One of the things that was my inspiration, I, I don't remember the title of the book, but there was a guy who wrote um, a book about his life of management consulting, and he was a PhD in philosophy who didn't get a tenured position and so found his way in the consulting world and just talked about how the liberal arts education and his uh, graduate work in philosophy really set him up well to do this entrepreneurial work and then uh, later as an advisor uh, to be able to think critically, to be able to connect with people on a wide range of topics, to build relationships and connections. Uh, so, it's not you know, that the education is a waste, but, but uh, perhaps the end result of thinking that you're going to get a nice, cushy, tenured teaching job at the end of it is becoming less and less of a reality
0: do you get to speak your mind and be a little bit more open about where you quote unquote stand on issues or you know whatever people are talking about that that's popular nowadays um, when you are not when your paycheck doesn't depend on saying the right things in the right way oh absolutely yeah absolutely
1: that uh- I mean, and, and, and to be fair, I'm not sure if it would have, I'm not sure in my particular case. I know others, you know, may get fired for having particular stances. It may not have been that stark for me, but there's certainly a pressure and an unknowing of w- what happens if. And, you know, I remember teaching even even at uh, where, I, where I taught was a, a Christian university. And I wrote a book with Pete called Genesis for Normal People. And I remember thinking, okay, this isn't going to toe the line of maybe a more conservative uh, 20th century interpretation, uh, conservative ev- evangelical interpretation. And so, I went to my dean and sat down with her and said, hey, um, so I'm writing this book, and I'd be happy not to put your name on the back if you think that it's going to you know, ruffle feathers and and she said, "You know, what kind of institution do you think this is? That's totally fine. That's it's it's not it's not a big deal at all." But my my paranoia, I guess, and skepticism of that, um, I think, is pretty common. And yeah, I definitely appreciate being able to just have conversations and have it be a part of everyday life, rather than um, having to worry about whether my views are going to affect whether or not I can put food on the table for my kids.
0: You know, that's really. <laughs> That's really good of your dean to have that sort of reaction. I think uh, many pe- many people who have held their true feelings and wish that their superiors would would have that attitude, or wish that they were an institute or institution where that would that would right. be the case. And and I, I hope that the trend continues where organizations get new leadership who values even just a small, mo- a slightly larger amount of diversity. Um, over time can can add up, um, so yeah, yeah. And
1: I think it's I think it's valuable to say her you know her exact words were, uh, if you can find any evidence for your view within the history of orthodoxy of the church, you're probably fine. <laughs> so she was just <laughs> casting you know casting that net. Why wasn't anything close? Yeah. But it certainly was more of a, a wider a broader spectrum of things that were appropriate.
0: Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of where I go with things. It's like, well, you know, many Christians have believed this along the way. They might be wrong, but this isn't out this isn't way out in left field or out of the ballpark, if you will.
1: Right. And and exercising, you know, we talk a lot on our podcast about how we could learn a lot from the Jewish faith, where within their tradition debates are part of faith. And I think we could exercise that muscle as Christians a little bit more. Where we, we tend to just cut people off and say, "Well, we'll just create a new denomination," rather than uh, rather than just engaging in the debate and seeing that itself as part of faith and part of growing. Yeah. In our faith.
0: Yeah. Isn't aren't we lucky that our denomination finally got it right? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the it's, that can be the attitude. I mean, I don't right? think people it's most right. people don't explicitly say that, but uh, yeah. it is it tends to be the attitude. So, as a business consultant who is, you know, you're openly a Christian and you you also deal with uh, Christian business owners who may struggle connecting what they do uh, during the week with their faith. Some of them don't, uh, some of them don't really have a problem with that, but when you advise people to connect what they do beyond just, you know, the, the relationship between being being a creative uh, being and being someone who can create uh, a business and, and work daily in doing that, what what kind of advice do you have for our listeners who maybe they don't own a business, maybe they manage, maybe, they, um, maybe they're maybe they thinking of going out on their own, and maybe they don't really connect their faith to doing it other than, you know, ethical th- concerns, you know, like don't. Mm-hmm don't, uh, you know, sexual harassment, you know, we're going to avoid that, you know, those kinds of like moral behaviors. I think most, most of our listeners would say, well, of course we're going to avoid that in our business also, but it obviously goes, I, I think I'm safe to say that both you and I think that doing business, uh, with a kingdom mindset goes far deeper than, than avoiding ethical violations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I would say two things, you know, I, it actually reminds me of, um, you know, John Calvin, I have a love-hate relationship with John Calvin these days. You know, going to a Presbyterian seminary and and uh, and then later, you know, now I go to an Anabaptist uh, church. But um, yeah, the, in the Christian, in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, his you know big humongous two-volume set. There, he actually starts the whole thing. His first chapter, he starts with um, this chapter on you know, in order to know God, you actually have to know yourself. And in order to know yourself, you have to know God, it's this dialectic that you can't get away from. And I think one of the things that I often talk with uh, business owners, I have a, I have a peer group and I coach a lot of, of owners and presidents. And one thing is, is they think that their Christian faith precludes them from knowing themselves. This idea of sin or this idea of uh, pride or humility. These concepts keep them from actually giving a lot to introspection and self-awareness and what it is that makes them tick and what it is that they're passionate about. Somehow that's become a dirty word or, you know, something that's inappropriate. And so I like to use Calvin there to say, hey, you really want to grow in your faith, um, grow in your self-understanding. And that connects to your business because you spend a third of your life in this environment. And it affects you, and how does it affect you? and 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 then bring your faith into that conversation. rather than again, uh, rather than making faith uh, these nice, neat, tidy things that we bring into work as though they're packages, right? Sometimes I feel like we bring faith into work like we bring products. Um, you know, it's almost like, hey, did you uh, did you purchase the new uh, how to bring your faith into work DVD set? Um, rather than sort of breaking that down and saying, my faith is all of me, Um, it's every part of me. And so, uh, the real question is not how to bring my faith, it's really to recognize it's already here, and how do I see it, how do I acknowledge it, and how do I foster it? Um, And so, I think that's the first thing, is knowing ourselves um, through that. And then, yeah, the second thing which is tied to that is, I think once we start having that as an open conversation and dialogue about, the faith that's already here, we start to see this Christianity or faith in general as um, much bigger than maybe some of the ways that it's been narrowed in a lot of our thinking, that faith is about three things, reading your Bible, praying, and evangelizing. And rather being able to see that there's a huge tradition of wonderful Christian thinkers who've tied faith in the Bible and scripture and church to concepts like beauty, creativity, uh, passion, um, love, community, neighborliness, um, treating others with respect and dignity, all of these things um, have a deep and rich theological background and history. And so, we can bring our faith into how I'm going to treat this person that's sitting right in front of me, and not in any cliche ways, not in Uh, John 3.16 sort of trite throwing Bible passages out, but in a deep contextual way, what does it mean for the kingdom to be at work in this place? And how is my faith already at work? And how is God already moving in this other person? Um, You know, Paul talks about Christ in us, the hope of glory, that uh, we don't bring Christ into the workplace because Christ is already there uh, when we show up. And it's more, we do more archaeological work where we're doing the digging and finding out and pointing to where God is already at work. So, sorry, I got, I got a little ceremony there, but,
0: um, oh, that's, that's great. I wanted you to get that way a little bit, I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I, and you know, I would, I the only thing I, else I would say is the work can be, I don't know how to say this. I spend a lot of time coaching people through in, in very gentle and kind but hopefully persuasive ways that maybe their theology is tripping them up some. That, that maybe God maybe God has a a different angle or a different perspective that could be taken on a particular. Thing. I'm thinking of someone I was just recently working with where uh, they kept saying they want to do what they ought to do, kept using this ought language, what I ought to, do, ought to do. And so we we just talked a little bit about what does grace mean? You know, you're a very generous and gracious person. You show grace to a lot of your employees, but how does that work with this ought language? And and so, we just went down that. And it turns out that, you know, this conception of God that is always the one who is holding you to the oughts and making sure you're disciplined doing what you should be doing doesn't always square with a God of love and grace who maybe is asking, what do you want to do? Maybe God's supporting us in some of the things that we want to do. And again, that ew, how do we walk through that emotionally when that feels kind of selfish or
0: yeah. um,
1: it feels like I get, there's a lot of guilt.
0: God's not afraid of this. our freedom to find ourselves in his will.
1: Yeah, yeah, well put. Yeah, that's well put. So, yeah, exactly. And so, walking through um, and, and walking people to this notion of freedom, I think, and and, and not guilt. There's a lot of guilt. Um, in businesses, Christian-owned and run businesses and family-owned firms, there's a lot of guilt going around, and and uh, I think that's a hindrance from the potential.
0: Do you find that there's a lot of startups uh, that are run by Christians that try to be explicitly Christian, or is is that something you can even speak to?
1: Yeah, some. I, I wouldn't have a lot of experience. Okay. With it, um, I would say I've seen a lot more startups with the perspective of uh, faith as the groundswell or the source of what we do, uh, without it being so explicit. And, uh, and and personally, in my journey, I appreciate that approach a lot, um, as it connects, with, um, it connects with a kingdom vision, in my understanding.
0: Do you think it just goes better because being explicit can possibly rub people the wrong way, or it just doesn't serve the organization well?
1: well there's a yeah two things i think yeah one is uh, it can feel really gimmicky i feel like i think uh, culturally it's like part, know, of
0: part of the pr plan yeah exactly yep yeah it's, it's all marketing
1: um and i don't i don't particularly sit well with sort of using talk about i often talk about i don't like using christian as an adjective and that's how it can feel like i'm a christian business or christian music or cri- like that's a when we use that as an adjective, really, it's a marketing label, uh, I, I would think. But I think the second thing is I'm more interested, I think, in the fruits of our labor and in the outcomes. And again, for me, the kingdom work is—and and maybe it's it tied to my vision of the kingdom, too, that you know, part of my work is to point out all the beautiful things that are being created in the world. And to create beautiful things in the world. And so— yeah, that's what i that's that's how I want to do that. I like to do that in a more in a more subtle way. Like I want to create a beautiful thing. I don't want to just slap a Christian sticker on top of a mediocre product. I want to create a beautiful thing. And for me, the beauty of it is what tells of its kingdom source, if that makes
0: sense. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, it doesn't sound like you're saying people shouldn't describe themselves as adjective Christian, but that the the adjective in labeling your business or or what you do as Christian, it goes a little Right. Yeah, it goes a little too far in in your mind. I kind of agree a a bit, you know, it's what does it mean to even say you're a Christian business unless you're always going to be the sole proprietor? Um, And with no no employees, I mean, as soon as you have more than your family, and then now Mm -hmm. what? But uh, there's a little dilemma and identity there. But, you know, you're saying that the fruit, if, I think you used the word groundswell, uh, you know, if you're rooted as a Christian company, Per, quote unquote, then the fruits are going to to be borne out from that.
1: Yeah, I would rather the community where I find myself doing business. I'd rather actually send them a survey and ask them, "Are we a Christian business?" Uh, I feel like that's a, a much better uh, that's a much better indication of whether I am or not, rather than me just saying that I am, because we can base it on that the fruit.
0: Oh, of, I see. Like what Like is. if you could survey them.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I'd rather let them define it for
0: me. Well, they'd probably say, no, no one's ever told me about Jesus. (laughs) Because that's what people associate with being a Christian business, is the witness aspect. Right, right. Yeah, I think
1: that's that's right.
0: Which I guess would end up being a compliment in the end, (laughs) if you think about it, yeah.
1: Right, yeah. So, I mean, I think this is a, I think it's an important conversation. You know, one family that I think does this well, the Chick-fil-A family, you know, we use them as a, as an example not too long ago at, at one of our events, around values. And how do you maintain Christian values uh, within an organization? Because it's a structure, like you, what you said, as soon as you're no longer a sole proprietor, if you're not the sole employee and the sole board member and the sole owner and the sole person making all the decisions, in what sense are you? And I think there's this process that we really advocate that families can go through which is this values process, and, and Chick-fil-A has done a good job of where they took the Christian values of the founder and they extrapolated what I would call uh, values founded in faith. They're not explicitly Christian, but they're founded in the faith of the founder. And they make those part and parcel of how the organization runs, and they do that differently within the family. They have foundations and philanthropic activities that are governed by these values, and that's different than how the business is run. They're very integrated, but they're translated in a slightly different way, and I think they've done a really good job with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, and they're also well-known as, you know, for better or for worse, depending on your political angle on things, they're they're well-known as a company that stands by those those convictions and those values uh, as well. Right,
1: right, good or bad, and and in this conversation, I think it's important to name in my training and philosophy, I, I'm not usually judging the content of of these examples, more the process that they've gone through and right, uh, yeah. and seeing, hey, maybe they, they've they've been authentic and consistent in their approach and their message and that's commendable.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're a process guy, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you like to think about that. Well, you know, that really ties into the the idea of being mindful of who you are, discovering yourself as you mentioned earlier. And, you know, you're, it, it's no wonder that you kind of lean toward helping people do that, helping business owners do that and get away from the idea that that might be too prideful or too much to, you know, mm. out, outside the realm of Christian permissibility is to, to know yourself well uh, because you like to, you, you are a process person and you like to help people, you know, think through that. And I think when when someone's a process person and they, they see those things as very important, it isn't just simply about the goals it's about almost like it's about who you are and if if you don't have that if you don't have a core conviction a core value it doesn't even have to be a system i wanted to use the word system there for a second but then you're not going to be able to have the right kind of fruit if all you care about is well what kind of fruit do i have you know you, you it you can be successful and you can have those kinds of fruits i'm sure but Introspection and you know, always thinking about who are we as a company and our values, and who am I as a as a leader, um, is is very very important.
1: Yeah, and and I would say you know, just from our experience now working with uh, I don't know, probably pretty intimately working with maybe uh, forty or fifty families um, over the last few years, is that. The founder of a company tends not to be that introspective because like you said, uh, we were talking earlier, they don't have to think about how this gets translated into a system. There isn't a real need to be self-aware about those core convictions. They just do it and it comes out in their work and anyone who rubs shoulders with them gets infected by it, by these values and this process. Distance matters in these things. Where now you bring on a partner or you pass it along to your son, and now there's one step removed from that energy source, if you will, or the value source. Mm-hmm. And that's when an organization really, if they want to be consistent or to maintain that level of culture and values, they have to become self-aware. And that can just be a tricky thing because the founders left wondering, well, why do you have to do all this? It seems like a waste of time. It seems really <laughs> inefficient. <laughs> yeah. Um. But they don't, They're just not in the same worldview. They're not in the same space or the same perspective as maybe the son or the sibling or the partner uh, or the cousin, whatever the case may be. And it's just it can be tricky to communicate why. Now we have to You know what? Here, Dad, you had all these wonderful values, but if we don't systematize it and put it in a process, then we have those values because we grew up as your kids. But our kids. Uh, we can't help but it's a dilution of values and you can't help that it's going to happen um, the best thing you can do is mitigate it by putting those values into processes and and into systems um, that will continually we have to be confronted with on a daily weekly monthly basis
0: what do you do with families that have conflicting values i mean if if there's whether it's succession succession planning where you know kids take over the the business and, you know, maybe maybe one of them just has rejected their family's faith um, or just they have a, I mean, basically we go back to the unequally yoked phrase in Paul. I was told growing up that that really had to do with marriage and or it applied to marriage and so, you know it didn't occur to me until my adulthood that it applies to way more than that um, but what how do you advise people maybe christians who might be listening dealing mm-hmm. with a conflict of values and and they and I'm not talking about like well I believe we should give you know 10% out of our profits versus 20% or something like that but just like a, a fundamental difference in in value source
1: I think the first thing what you said is important is we have to ask the question what is fundamental because like we talked about earlier, with different denominations, it's very easy to chalk it up to a different of, difference of values. And uh, so I just, I guess, I would say we just have to be careful we don't get too petty with those things, and and really have the hard conversation of what is fundamental and why is this fundamental rather than that thing. Um, and I just think that's important because sometimes uh, we we split businesses, churches, otherwise, families over things that at the end of the day really aren't fundamental, that they aren't that important. Um, but, but beyond that, you know, we, we advocate that we expect you to have different values, and that's why the conversation of what is core is so important. So we often take uh, family members through this exercise where we talk about personal values and because there's an assumption that we all have to share our values. Well, that's not true. You just got to share the ones that are going to impact whatever it is you're doing together. Um, so if you're doing this business together, we need to share some f- really important values, but maybe you have other values that you don't need to share. And that's called being an individual, and that's okay. So it's it's getting clear on what your individual values are first, and then we literally just ask, okay, which ones of those do you share? Um, and language complicates that. I'll just name that. It's really important because we were meeting with a family not too long ago, and they put up different words um, we used sticky notes, and they had, each person has their own color. And it was funny that they one person didn't share the color with anyone else. They were they were their own block off to the side, and they said, "Well, that's interesting." So this looks like we have no shared values. But the more we talked about it, the more the rest of the family was coming at these words from maybe I would say a a more blue-collar perspective and definitely a more explicitly Christian perspective, where the other family member had actually worked for several years first in a corporate environment, and so was using corporate language. And so once we were able to say, well, you say you value uh, excellence, um, and you guys say you value, we do our work as unto the Lord, can you talk about how those are similar or different? And it turned out that it was the exact same. But the feeling was, we're worlds apart. If you would ask without that conversation, they would have said, Well, we don't value excellence. That sounds prideful. And you would ask him, He said, Well, we don't value that because that doesn't really resonate with me. But after talking about it, they realized they were just using different words because they come from different environments. Um, so, yeah, that's a long way of saying, I think uh, we going through a process, um, surprise, surprise, to actually identify what your personal values are. And frankly, in our work, that's a real challenge. People aren't always really familiar with their personal values, going back to the know yourself um, in order to know God conversation we are having. And then you can ask, do we share or what values do we share? And then you can ask, are there what are our core values in this venture? What are the things that we all say are non-negotiable that we must share Moving forward in this particular venture, and if we can't come to terms with that, then that's perhaps the conversation of maybe we shouldn't be um, co-joined, to use your phrase uh, of unequally yoked. Uh, Maybe we shouldn't be co-joined in this venture, and and that's okay because we've gone through a process where we understand why.
0: So for many businesses, this would seem like hiring someone like like one of the firms like like the firm that you work at. Uh, could be a costly endeavor that it just seems like oh process we got business to do. Um, yet it obviously seems really important because you're talking about things that you know businesses could survive or die on whether or not they have <laughs> all of their values straightened out. You know if they're if they're owned by multiple people or if the you know whoever is running the running the ship uh doesn't really have a a north star so to speak. So what is the what is the nature of this kind of consulting business and when do when do businesses need to reach out and 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 get the kind of help that you you're used to providing?
1: Yeah, I mean unfortunately, you know, we often talk about for us we have businesses that come to us um businesses that come to us because they want to go to the gym and businesses that come to us because they think we're the ER. And You know, unfortunately, in our experiences, um, businesses don't necessarily want to invest in being proactive and setting up good structures, good conversations, walking through the process early on. Um, They wait until there's pain, uh, you know, and which is okay. You know, usually it's that entrepreneurial spirit of we can do it ourselves, and uh, you know, we just often find the case that as businesses grow. You need support and you need help. I, one thing I would a caveat I would say is, um, I feel like sometimes consultants get a get a bad rap, and I think for good reason that you know you spend and invest a lot of money and aren't sure exactly you're just being told what to do. And so I would say anyone that a business is planning to bring on board or hire, be very clear about what the outcomes are that they're providing, and make sure they're going to walk with you along the way. With the caveat being that at the end of that, they're teaching you how to do it on your own. So you're not dependent on the firm, but you're learning along how to build that muscle, how to develop it in your own way so that you can transfer those practices within the company and then from generation to generation, if that's what you would want to do, or from partner to partner as the as the firm continues on. So, you know, for us, I would even say for us, we even have advisors and consultants in our firm, because we may have all these principles, um, but to be able to to do them on your own is just really hard. And I think every, every business needs help um, in doing these things, primarily help in taking your hand off the plow for a little bit and not just working in the business, but working on the business. And a lot of what we do is provide accountability for businesses and families to say, hey, this month, have you worked on your business? Have you worked on your family or are you just working in the business, getting the day-to-day done? Because there's events on the horizon. There's uh, tragedies we can't, we can't predict. There are transition events. There are changes coming. And we just want to make sure that you're giving attention to those things rather than just having your hand to the plow. So we're off in those eyes and ears and that accountability.
0: Jared, thank you for being with us. This has been I've found an enlightening conversation. You, you've talked about a few things in in a in a way that you don't get to talk about on your normal podcast because you're not really talking about businesses. And um, I, I think that from on a practical level, integration of theology and business is probably to some extent less complicated than it needs to be. And I think you've helped give us a little bit of uh, feet to that, if you will, uh, and how to how to think about how to think about business, how to think about what we do in our work, and and to do it uh, to the glory of God uh, as unto the Lord slash excellence. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, thank you so much, Doug, for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time.
1: The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were
0: Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.